For June 22nd, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 577. The moon landing wasn't not staged. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are uh, gathering together, hunkering down in a small space and hurtling ourselves at whatever object catches our intellectual uh, attention at the moment. I'm Matt Rather. I am joined by my co-pilots, Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. And Mark Lee is back. Hello, Mark. Roger, Roger, Matthew. <laughs> uh, one of these days, Pete and Mark, kapow to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Wap zoom indeed. <laughs> we're, we're talking about uh, the anniversary of the moon landing, of uh, one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. We're talking about uh, the Apollo 11 mission. Yep. We're talking about the moon. We're going uh, to the moon. So let's just begin. Uh, Go quick around the horn. Guys, this is an important moment in history, and I'm sure every American uh, has an incredible... I mean, every human on Earth, perhaps, has an incredible memory of this time. So uh, where were you when Neil Armstrong first set foot on the moon? Pete, uh, you're first in the alphabet. Let us know. Well, I have a dim memory of (laughs) swimming between two lily pads and Uh ducking my head under the water several times. Uh, I don't know whether I was trying to eat some sort of delicious tidbit that was skirting across the surface of the water or whether I was merely trying to wash something off the back of my glossy green mallard head. Uh, But then I remember taking flight myself, uh, and I remember that it was the moon landing because there were these two um, hunters who were listening to a radio talking about the moon landing, and then one of them shot me, and then there was about 11 years of darkness. So I think that's that's basically that's as far as I can remember in terms of where I was during the moon landing. How about you, Mark? So that, that, that was a that was a reincarnation backlog, huh? They were really uh, <laughs> eleven years seems like a long time. I mean, the population had not exploded quite to the extent that it has since then. Look, a truly great project takes a long time. What would a gym teacher say? In order to jump high, you must make a long run, right? Something along those lines. Uh, Mark, where were you when, the, when Neil Armstrong set, for, set foot on the moon? Uh, I had to say nowhere because Neil Armstrong never walked on the moon. Thank you very much. Uh, no. Okay. We might talk about the conspiracy theory stuff later. But, uh, okay, let's see here. Let's go with uh, Vietnam. Uh, no, I'm not, even, I'm, I'm not even joking. Like, my dad... Uh, I think might have been in Vietnam as a soldier in the South Korean Army in 1969. Uh, my timing might be a little bit off, but it's pretty darn close. If he wasn't in Vietnam, then he might have been uh, in the DMZ because um, uh, and my, uh, because that's the other place where South Korean soldiers go oh, wow. on duty. Um, but yeah, I, I actually, it might have been either my my dad or my mom has an interesting story of like in the rural South Korean village, like somebody got a TV, you know, uh, not like, you know, uh, one for their living room, but one for the whole freaking village. And they all gathered around and watched the tube and watched this American dude walk on the moon. And that must have blown their freaking minds. Yeah. Right. Think about that for a second. Right. Yeah. Look up, look up at the sky and think like there's a dude up there, you know? Oh my gosh. There's a dude. Um, <laughs> Let's see. My uh, my parents were students at the University of Texas Austin, Hook'em Horns, uh, and they had met each other, uh, I think, by this time. So though uh, they had not yet made me, I gather that they were practicing. So the uh, the moon the the moon landing, guys. It's a uh, it is um, a lot of things. It's a you know triumph of of human ingenuity. It's a, uh, a triumph of bringing literal Nazi rocket scientists, literal. Nazis to the United States and like uh, forgetting all that Nazi stuff because they could take us to the moon. It's a triumph of uh, uh, revisionist history, I guess, in a lot of ways. It's a triumph of of hoaxing the the, uh, the, the so many so many triumphs. It's hard to know what triumph to begin. But one thing it is definitely was a, a media spectacle. People watched it. People watched this thing happening live on TV, and um, and we. I, I I can't help thinking that it lives in our imagination um, so vividly because there is footage of it and and pictures of it which are um, 
accurate enough or I guess high resolution enough to kind of be able to make out what's going on. And yet, to a certain extent, the the oldness of the footage like uh, gives you a space to kind of project into the uh, into the goings on. Right. If it were like super high def 4K, I, I don't know. I, I just have a I, I have a feeling that the the sort of the graininess, the uh, indistinctness of, you know, uh, the then current television technology and then keeping keeping in mind that they were like beaming it through literal space out, uh, you know, out, out from the moon and, and down onto the earth. Um, you know, whatever, whatever that did to degrade the signal as, as well, like that, there, there's something that's an invitation, uh, to the imagination, uh, about that. Mark, you were thinking about the moon landing as a, as a sort of media spectacle. Um, what, what can you offer here? Yeah. Oh, so many different things here. Um, let me start with that. Uh, the, what you're where we left off there with the grainy nature of the footage and giving something for imagination to do. Uh, I probably talked about this on the podcast before, but that is, I think a huge difference between actually video games of like the eighties and nineties and early aughts, what we grew up with and what we have now, right? The often pixelated and poly polygonal nature of those games required your imagination to do a lot of work. And in a way that, you know, the hyper photorealistic Call of Duty 5000 uh, does not require you to do. Um, I think that's a highly rewarding thing. And it makes me sad a little bit that um, that, that experience is being lost on other generations. Um, uh, we can certainly talk about more about that. But just like what one of the, the big thing uh, that, that jumps out to me about the the moon mission as a media spectacle is just the vast scale of it. Right. Um, according to The New York Times, I think like 90 plus percent of households with a television uh, was watching the moon landing live. Uh, and uh, based on anecdotal things that I've read about this, like it was, you know, the whole thing was like 32 hours long. And uh, so people were just like watching it nonstop over the, over, uh, uh, over that course of, of a couple of days. Um, and to, to imagine all of society coming together for something uh, and to watch it live and for it to not be some, something horrific like 9-11, um, it really stretches the imagination to think about what, could possibly bring us together like that. Um, oddly enough, it makes me think about Eurovision, which which might be the closest thing to uh, uh, to the moon landing in terms of like a widely watched live thing happening that's not uh, um, like breaking news um, in, in the sense of uh, you know like unexpectedly at least. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of my the the. the, the my overriding thought right now is the vastness of that aside from like the comparing it to uh, my nineties video games. Um, that's probably just my, um, my own personal bias and makes me think of those things. Pete, do you remember when we were all one people on the earth and uh, there was an area division uh, among us before the internet? That, that, that was a good time. Wasn't it? Back then? I, I think that during that point I was some sort of slug just crawling out of the primordial <laughs> ooze. <laughs> then we split up about a hundred thousand years ago. Right. It's been, it's been a lot of stuff since. Um, yeah. So that what that's what interests me about this partially is, uh, when you're moon landing, right, 50 years ago, moon landing, boom, big anniversary this month, this week, uh, very exciting, um, is that different people would be interested in watching it for different reasons, which is, I think, one of the things that maybe gets missed a little bit in talking about why the moon landing is such a big deal. I think that there's something in it for everybody. It's kind of as a media, as a sort of like it's a four quadranter, right? Like kids would watch it, adults would watch it, men would watch it, women would watch it. Uh, it's new and it's exciting, so it attracts sort of maven type people, but it also can fit very comfortably into a variety of existing narratives. So it watches gets watched by people who want to see things that are traditional. Uh, there's definitely the idea of the sort of idealist versus the pragmatist might both be interested or even the Machiavellist, right? All of them would be interested in the moon landing because it represents the best of what we can achieve or the most of what we can achieve, uh, which are of interest to perhaps different groups of people to different degrees, maybe not groups, but individuals, different temperaments, right? That uh, it's not just that TVs could only watch so many things. And it's not just that nothing else was happening, that, that, was sort of uh, so visual and so kind of impressive. And not just the fact that the feat itself was so mind-blowing, but it was that the the achievement of it has this sort of symbol. Sim- I mean, it's it's symbolic, I think. And, and that word gets bandied about a lot, but we could say that it's symbolic in almost the literary critical way in that it is a kind of um, 
a vehicle that has many tenors, right? It's, it's something that can stand for many things for many people. I don't know, Matt. How would you unpack the meaning of what the moon landing is to all these people around the world watching it, and how to even to begin to define it? I guess the le- the the I mean the you know lunar landing module was a vehicle, but I think Buzz Aldrin <laughs> was actually a base and not. <laughs> A tenor. Thank you very much. I'll let myself out. <laughs> oh, it'll be it'll be a long, endless night on the dark side of the moon. Straight to the airlock. For you, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Mark, yeah. it is. It, Mark, also, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, no. It is. It, please, but what dad jokes? Bring it on, please. No, I was just going to say, if we're going to talk about the dark side of the moon, Mark had sent around some great stuff about the media coverage of the moon landing involve, involving the BBC playing Pink Floyd oh, <laughs> live yeah. in the studio yeah. right we should definitely talk about what the moon landing symbolizes uh into all those four quadrants that you described Pete. um <laughs> but uh I, I learned this uh today in preparation for this and we'll definitely include the link to the article new york times article in the show notes that uh the bbc broadcast of this was kind of different from what we saw here in the us of a with the old walter cronkite but the very seriousness of it um they <laughs> they underscored the moon landing with david bowie's uh, space oddity which came out like that month in July of 1969. Okay, so that's interesting, right? Um, they did like this. They let Pink Floyd just do this blues, five minutes of a blues jammy thing, a song called Moonhead. And here's the kicker, okay? Um, there was a dramatic reading uh, with lunar themes from Ian McKellen and Judy Dench. Okay? Both in Cats the Musical, the movie. Coming right. out. <laughs> Reunited year. again after. after <laughs> 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 Um, and, and, and so here's something interesting about this, right? Um, a, a YouTube search uh, failed to come up with this uh, dramatic reading, right? Like oh. this is something that um, maybe is lost to time or at least is like not available on YouTube, which that in and of itself is kind of notable, right? Um, that uh, that's something that, you know, a lot of people would want to watch and, you know, had two at least, you know, current day stars um, in it is, is not available. So fun fact about the lunar broadcast at least not in another uh, in another country so I mean, it, very interesting yeah it is it is interesting it's this kind of overdetermined sort of symbol i guess i, I guess calling it overdetermined presupposes that there's some kind of authorial consciousness behind it uh and and i guess in a way there is an authorial uh, consciousness behind it because you know someone once wrote a speech that said we choose to go to the moon not because it is easy but because it is hard and you know there there is uh, a sense of like calling your shot um to that and sort of telling the telling the story in advance or kind of making a promise a vow right and that uh uh that is gonna be you know that it's gonna be um this this fantastic thing but it hasn't you know it hasn't happened yet but but the, the so so sorry what, I, what i'm trying to say is that like there are different points at which you can narrativize it you can sort of narrativize it uh pre facto right and uh post facto what's what's a uh, what's latin ante ante facto right um before and before and after the fact, where it was, uh, you know, it, what did it mean? It meant American ingenuity. It meant um, uh, military supremacy, technological supremacy. It meant economic development. It meant, um, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of victory um, for us. I guess you could go to a kind of a broadly humanistic view and say it like it represents, uh, the next, the next evolution from the, the slug oozing forward from the, the primordial soup to the mallard taking flight to, uh, you know, to, uh, sending Apollo 11 up on that, on that rocket, right? Like there, there is a way to do a kind of, grand uh grand narrative of of human progress this is something that you know um no less a uh no less a a humanitarian propagandist than aaron sorkin did in uh the west wing when he's like well why do we why are we spending this money on science why are we you know why 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 aren't we doing something practical with our funds and uh it's i think it's rob lowe or something who did a lot of this idealistic stuff on that show it's like because it's what's next we 
came out of the ocean and we came out of the cave and we looked to the and we set forth across the across the ocean and and found the new world and we uh spread from sea to shining sea and one day we looked up at the stars and wondered about our potential and realized that that potential may well be limitless which you know completely elides the history of like bloodshed and dispossession and uh um you know all kinds of of negatives that that go to that and makes it a sort of triumph of the human spirit kind of narrative but like it is it is possible to to do that but like the the important thing about that west wing scene is the stakes are like a line item or a budget allocation you know that's the that's the thing that that you know rousing peroration is being marshaled in the service of um so I, I guess, Pete, this has been kind of a rambling answer, but it's, uh, uh, it's like a little bit like uh, asking James Dean, what are you rebelling against? You know, the answer is, what have you got? And it's like, what does the moon landing mean to the people? It's like, well, what have you got? You know, show, show, me, the, show me the anxieties of the people or show me where they feel, um, show me where they feel, uh, you know, I don't know, lacking or hemmed in or something like that. And, and, you know, and I'll show you, uh, where they are likely to kind of develop a, a system of meeting around the idea of the moon landing. One last thing, my, uh, history teacher, uh, American history teacher once made the point, um, to our like 11th grade class or something, trying to get a sense of what pre-revolutionary colonial America was like. And, uh, he made the point that it took something like six days to travel from New York to Boston by horse or by coach or, you know, when the roads were good enough or what have you. And, uh, made the point that whatever, you know, however, uh, however long you travel, it's possible to get anywhere on earth in less than six days, six days to travel. Did I say six hours, six days to travel to Boston? And uh, he said the only place now in the late 20th century, uh, at the turn of the millennium, as it then was that, that it takes six days to travel is the moon. And, uh, we all went, ah, and we understood that, uh, the world used to be, uh, uh, farther away and scarier and larger place, but it was now, uh, it was now very, very, very small as one must have felt watching Neil Armstrong take those first steps on the moon. I don't know, Pete, that's, does that, does that, uh, get at some, some answer to your question? I mean, that's, I think you're telling me what it means to you, which uh, is exciting, uh, right? Definitely. And I guess, yeah, you it, it, you can't ask that question without context, because whatever context you put it in, it's going to be there. Uh, that, that Although it is kind of funny. It's funny because all of this talk about the kind of grandiosity and kind of open-endedness of it. And then also it's important to remember that they made a uh, – they wrinkled the flag that they put up in a specific way so that it looks like it was fluttering in the breeze. Right, uh, which is which is pretty funny when you think about it. Well, sure. I mean, the the, the moon landing wasn't staged, but it also wasn't not staged. You know, yeah, it's staged in the sense because people think these words mean mean different. People can be very casual about the multiple meanings of words sometimes, and can kind of think, well, if I come up with any way in which this word applies to a thing, it must apply to it in all ways, <laughs> right? So, I mean, speaking of staging and preparation, right, an important. I think to remember about the media spectacle that was the moon landing was that the astronauts were very carefully selected to be media stars, media heroes, and yeah. that extended as well to their wives, to their children, so that um, it could, you know, like like a reality show, right? Um, tell a compelling story, make you sympathize with the characters. Um, so, you know, Matt was talking about the grand narratives um, about, you know, the uh, humans traversing stars. Um, and that very much is true, but, you know, at another level, you know, it's it's very personal story. So, you know, if you're talking about what does this symbolize, um, for, for different people, for different audiences watching this, then it's also like, you know, their own families, their own fathers, really just men in this case, right. Going off to war, going off to work, going off to danger, to provide, to, uh, venture out into the wilderness, um, and then, uh, return to, uh, loving domesticity back at home. Hmm. I've been looking through various sorts of pictures of the moon landing, and this particular commemorative print has a quote from Richard Nixon, of all people, that, of course, I guess was president at the time, right? Uh, which gets elided a lot, right? Was Nick, no, no, it was it was uh, Johnson. Oh, no, no, totally Nixon. Yeah, he calls. Yes. He, there's a live telephone call from the White House to the astronauts. It blows your mind. 
That's like, because of what you have done, the heavens have become part of man's world. As you walk, as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. Uh, that's Richard Nixon, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, the that's purveyor that's, of are, peace and tranquility. Those are the words <laughs> that he said uh, on the phone to the astronauts. Uh, right. And while we're talking about context, right? Uh, 1969, freaking Vietnam was raging. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like you know, and and Nixon, uh, well, everybody was trying to bring it to some sort of peaceful end. So that that those words take on a lot of poignance there. Right, right, right. Uh, I mean, it's just it's interesting. I guess because it's so easy to lambast these things. Uh, I guess I guess partially because this is our parents' generation or even our grandparents' generation and not our own generation, it's easy to like look at the thing that they performed and poke all the holes in it and deconstruct it. I feel like that's a pretty simple and easy thing to do. Not deconstruct it, because that's that's also a kind of perverse use of the term, because uh, deconstruction is something quite a bit uh, more uh, agnostic to to uh, meaning than than to tear it apart. Right. But at the same De- time... Deconstructing it would be uh, like, we, we, we landed on the moon, we uh, didn't land on the moon, and those two statements are equivalent. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right, right. It's like, we didn't land on the moon. Uh, The moon landed on us. No, it's uh, what I'm saying is that it could have been so much worse. (laughs) It's kind of what 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 I want to kind of bring up, right? And I don't know if people mention that uh, as as much as maybe they ought to in the sense of like, well, either it's this idea that the moon landing is this beautiful, heroic moment for the human spirit, an aspirational moment, very characteristic of American attitudes towards the kind of negative externalities of having a country, which is to uh, believe in uh, in an aspirational idea that you kind of run parallel. I don't think that's strictly American either, but you run parallel to the reality of what everybody's experiencing. And, and people can feel adherence to this aspirational idea at the same time as they experience the reality that is, of course, far from perfect. Uh, and, and all of this, of course. And it's easy to say, like, well, you know, Vietnam was raging and they landed on the moon and this makes the moon landing and it's kind of Pollyannish attitude towards human unity inappropriate. But at the same time, would it necessarily have been better for them to land on the moon and like shoot a bunch of bullets into it, which is probably <laughs> what they might do now. <laughs> or just like, I don't know. You know what it reminds me of is I think the uh, second most important moon landing in uh, in pop culture, in my mind, is that of, uh, oh man, what is his, I want to make sure I get his full name right. Uh, Chairface Chippendale. Are you guys familiar with Chairface Chippendale? I'm about to uh, be. <laughs> he is a he is a villain from the Tick, uh, the the Tick comic and the Tick TV show, and he has a plot to carve his name on the moon with a giant laser, and the Tick. Uh, has to struggle to foil his plot. Uh, Chairface Chippendale is known as such because his head is a chair. That's just how it is. And the, and the tick manages to foil the plot, but not before Chairface has carved a C and half of an H into the moon. And so the C and the half of the H in the moon like stay up on the moon for the entire rest. Of, well, he then tries to go up to try to demolition it, right? To be like, well, we can try to get rid of these letters that have been on the moon since that supervillain attempted to uh, carve his name into it. Um there's certainly ways that it could have been worse and could still be worse. Uh, and so even though there are ways in which what was performed was perhaps, you know, dishonest or imperfect or, you know, problematic as such, uh, I definitely think that it is uh, it seems to be above the standard, de- the, like one standard deviation of niceness that you would sort of hope for. I mean, I don't know. Are you guys optimistic about about that whole thing, about the kind of how do you in the final calculus uh, measure up the uh, the way in which people behaved when they went to the moon and and everything around it, even when it was people like Richard Nixon who had of course been done very cruel and petty things in their lives that that uh, in, that had very deep public implications. Uh, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Uh, I mean, ultimately, I'm going to come down on yes, but before we uh, uh, unspool that more, like you know, the, the 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 way that it could have been worse, sort of thing, or like the, the criticism of the moon landing. Right. You know, it part of it involves like, you know, it's this whole Cold War thing, this, that and the other. But right. Um, it, people at the time were criticizing the fact that we were spending b- bazillions of dollars on this project rather than um, all the sorts of, you know, social welfare things at home for the, you know, as pressing right. as our problems are now, they were just like that much worse back then. And, and you know, that's that's not just like, you know, um, a, a a point we make in privilege and in hindsight and things like that. No, at contemporaneous to that time, um, some people were super unhappy about the fact that we were uh, uh, making such a huge effort on this thing. That right. being said, you know, to to uh, uh, answer your question, Pete, about like you know 
do we how do we feel about this thing right like the inspirational power of this uh is just um there, there's no end to it really right i mean you know people constantly evoke it in uh take undertaking uh hard and difficult things that require a lot of coordination and resources um and to say nothing at all of like you know the uh, the the cultural inspiration right you know star trek um launched around this time and you know you can't necessarily draw a direct line from the apollo program to uh oh i don't know right star trek discovery or something like that but like um you know it's uh, the space program at large right um sparked a, uh, had a lot of people looking to the stars looking beyond whatever our uh you know kind of humdrum day-to-day existences on this planet were and um that's got to be a good thing could there have been some other way to do it without spending bazillions of dollars on it uh i mean no one there's no way of answering that question at the point but all we have now is like you know the very clear aspirational motivational effects of the of the space program i mean i'm gonna guess given given the scale of the of the task i'm gonna guess no there's probably no way to do it without (laughs) spending billions of dollars on like there's no like economizing on certain certain of of those kinds of things i I mean honestly it's something that you know working in software development like it's something that that we talk about a little bit and like it's always used as an example of a kind of software that no one makes anymore except except uh well i mean except nasa except that they don't except space force right um (laughs) no no one makes uh, this kind of software anymore when you absolutely cannot have a problem you know, and and the behavior of the system has to be absolutely predictable under all, uh, you know, under all conditions, um, and the kind of uh, the kind of manual review. Though I guess I mean there would be some sort of way to to automate it with you know artificial intelligence or machine learning or something like that. These days, um, there would be an attempt made at that. But like, uh, you know, the idea that like people had to pour over it one you know one comma at a time and that that like that never happens. I mean, it's you know I don't know. It's it's impossible to find these days. It you know a build of your average video game that is not like super glitchy and. Uh, um, whatever, right? Like, uh, I don't know. Just to say nothing of a 737 max <laughs> too soon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're right. And that's like, uh, and actually, by the way, that's supposed to like Boeing is supposed to like be, um, to sort of work to that, to that standard or, you know, whoever their subcontractors, subcontractors are, because it seems like that's, uh, uh, in, in point of fact, that's who does a lot of that stuff. So, um, yeah, but like, uh, sorry, there was a, there was a, um, there was a place I wanted, I wanted to go with it. I think, I think that there's something about the, the present moment, not that these things aren't all cyclical and I'm not saying it's, it's, you know, particularly unique for this reason, but, um, we seem to be kind of intolerant of the kind of nuance that, that you're advocating, uh, Pete, that like, you know, I don't know. I, I, uh, that one of the reasons I sort of, not that, not it tickles me that, that sounds trivializing and and in uh um inconsiderate but like uh one of the reasons it tickles me that there is um uh you know that like uh the history of the moon landing is the history of like you know being being pragmatic about those nazi scientists you know well how how bad were they like when did they stop pay i mean did they pay their dues all the way up to 1944 i you know the the um the uh is that that we seem to be in an environment that does not allow for a lot of that uh you know doesn't allow um for a lot of that sort of nuance and like the 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 idea that there is kind of a totalizing reality um there's a kind of totalizing narrative that you can you know put forward about something is is an idea that we seem to be invested in these days which is funny because you know perspectives have never been more fragmented you know no one canonical truth etc cetera, etc cetera, that like um you know the idea that like you know so so it it i can ask without a shred of irony you know was the moon landing woke you know and <laughs> What you know? What I want to. I keep going. Do you want to finish that? that No, I just. I want to let that. I want to let that hang like a rocket arcing across the sky. You know, was the moon landing woke? (laughs) 
<laughs> I I feel like I need to write one of the great injustices of the history of the Overthinking It podcast right now and do a little bit of penance, which Uh-oh. is that is that all right? Pat? Yes, no, please, okay? like let it let it uh, you know bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It is pen. <laughs> <laughs> One week so, since my last podcast. Many years ago. <laughs> that, so the Overthinking It podcast, by the way, has been in existence for about as long as it took to make the, the less than it took to make the moon landing happen. Right. Like much less. It, like uh, three years or so less. But still, when this moonshot was still taking off, I also made some comment in one of our podcasts about the various Nazi scientists and, and rocket scientists in particular who assisted the American government with the development of uh, delivery systems for intercontinental ballistic missiles and things like that. Right. Like, it, And I might be kind of specifically right or wrong about, you know, what system it was and when. But at the time, I tarnished uh, just utterly unjustifiably the good name of john von neumann uh and uh the the not german but in fact hungarian right uh rocket scientist and general mathematician right he contributed significantly to a variety of areas of mathematics and and game theory really just one of those transformative intellectuals for whom entire fields of study had to be invented and named because his work was too large to be located within any one discipline uh and i think it's worth pointing out that john von neumann was very very idealistic about his taking a job with the American government and and offering his his uh, mathematical and uh, and and um, kind of computational and kind of engineering leaning capabilities because he uh, of course came from a country that was under the thumb of a variety of totalitarian totalitarian dominations going all the way back through even you know Austria and whatnot and and very much valued the idea uh, you know I, certain ideals that were associated with independence from totalitarianism and he believed that. In working for the government of the United States, uh, he would be uh, backing the side that would be fighting the enemies of, you know, his situation, his his homeland situation in Hungary. Right now, granted, we don't necessarily all feel that way all the time about things. Right. But John von Neumann sure did. And so I just want to posit that in that um, these things in the sense of like, oh, how do we think about nuance? How do we think about all these things? Even something as as sort of isolated as the acceptance of foreign intellectuals into the inner circles of of American, you know, defense science, right, is something that has both a sort of deeply embedded ideology that could be seen as very positive and also deeply embedded ideologies that could be seen as very negative, <laughs> right? Yeah, but um, I mean, I, I hope they came to, I mean, I you know, you hope that they came to like it and to love it and believe in it. And if they, if they didn't, they should go back where they came from, right? <laughs> well, they have oh, a rocket. Oh, too soon, they can do that. No, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> You're talking about Dr. Strangelove, though. And in that sense, he gets what he wants at the end of the movie when the world just gets annihilated. And, <laughs> and if, if there are any people that I would associate with Dr. Strangelove uh, in this whole contemporary controversy, uh, I, I don't necessarily want to name them. Because, uh, it, it would be it would be too cruel to Peter Sellers, I think, to do so. Um, but, but yeah, that, no. But you know what I mean, right? It's that like it's tricky because you know, nothing's clean. Nobody's clean. Everybody's related to everybody else in well, some yeah, way or I mean, another. That's a, that's a good sure. And and I guess it's sort of like a little bit the the exaggerated version of myself that I perform for your amusement on this podcast. Like wants to kind of poke a, wants to poke my oh, yeah. wants to poke my finger in the eye of this this Titanic achi- achievement. And, and I do think there is a thing about Titanic achievements um, where like to the extent. You know, you you can get misty-eyed and idealistic about them to the extent that you feel like you can own them, right? Like that yeah. that you are sort of conceived of as part of the group that can own this uh, achievement and can kind of participate in it imaginatively. You know what I mean? And that, like, you know, and I, I'm sure there are there are now <laughs> and there were at the time um, people who felt like they people who felt like they can and, and people who, who felt like they can't. People who felt like they were awed by the scale of the task and people who felt like uh, and and the, the kind of the um, a, astonishing depth of, of the achievement and, you know, people who felt like it was a, in some sense a waste or, you know, it, it's... I'm like all all of those things kind of all of those things can can coexist and it says something about the kind of the the vastness of the of the human project that all of those things can kind of happen and and also be true you know 
Um, right. So uh, we've arrived at an answer to the question of uh, whether the moon landing was a good thing or a bad thing. And the answer is <laughs> yes. <laughs> um but let's i mean let's take it uh, to to the to the sense of uh you know i don't know sometimes i've like uh done some project management for for very difficult uh projects in my life some some things at work or personal i mean you know pete and mark you've both planned a wedding you know which is probably <laughs> like five or six times as hard as uh as a moon landing am i right so uh you know in, in it a uses way, a thousand times the computing capacity I mean, <laughs> like my watch to like buzz me and tell me hey you want to meditate for a minute uses a time, thousand times the computing capacity that uh was available to the to the astronauts who who went to the moon but sort of speak my, my, my wedding planning process is mostly me going to the segregated bathrooms and smashing them with a crowbar so that all the wisest and smartest people i know regardless of their ethnicity can pitch in and help me plan my I wedding mean, my, my, my point is like uh the 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 people who helped us go to the moon were not all attractive African-American ladies. Some of them were Nazis. But the... But uh gosh darn it. But but speaking of uh you know, I don't know, speaking of sort of of Titanic projects on this, you know, projects projects on this scale, you know, it's hard I don't know. Do you feel like there's room for this kind of thing? Do you, and not even like moonshots per se. Do you feel like you could rally humanity around a project like this? I think curing cancer is probably the only one that like could could probably get this level of uh, uh, get this level of excitement around you know um, from a as broad a swath of of humanity. I don't know. Is there is there is there room for this this scale of effort and achievement in in the world today at all or are we just small is it just are we just doing it all for the gram pete uh, <laughs> mark, mark is the one grunting so i'll let him go no first. you grunt you grunt he's grunting for the uh, gram. Uh, i'll start I mean, i'll say like you know there's a huge challenge to this sort of thing which is that like society has become so fragmented that collective action on this scale for anything whether sending someone to the moon or freaking fixing climate change is going to be very difficult right um you know i'll just point to the internet um that has allowed uh, dissenting voices uh, of any perspective um in particular often cases those with the least um knowledge or authority to, uh, to weigh in on something to gain a lot of traction and to undermine virtually anything anyone wants to do. So until we fix that, I got to say I'm not uh, I'm not so not so positive about so, uh, so I, in the future. I, I sort of, I'd like to build on what you just said, Mark, and I'm not necessarily strictly disagreeing, but I will suggest that I don't think it is ever appropriate. I can't it is it is notable that when Matt posed this question to us, he posed the issue of, is there anything that everybody would get behind the way that we all got behind the moon landing? Yeah, and we, and didn't, we, all, we didn't all get behind the moon landing. Good point. Yes, exactly. Mm. We didn't all get behind it. We just all enjoyed it when it had been accomplished. We were the, we didn't we were there to, to sow the, the wheat or to reap the wheat. We just waited for the little red hen to make the, you know, and the thousands of little red hens, right, to make the bread. And then we ate the bread and patted ourselves on the back for having chipped in some of the money i guess at the beginning uh but yeah like like the there's a bunch of things that are really interesting about the moon landing as a project that are very different with regards to things like climate change or curing cancer which seem to be the two problems that get most frequently compared to the moon landing despite being fundamentally different problems one of them is that the moon landing is not a collective action problem right like i the the task is we need to get and this is the one that Kennedy set out, right? Get he wants to get a man because he's patriarchal and and he's uh, definitely got certain gender ideas. So, so he said it had to be a man. Uh, I don't think we would set the same standard today, of course. Uh, but uh, not even not even for our for our uh, for our Thors. If you've been keeping track of Comic Con, very exciting. Natalie Portman picking up the hammer again. But uh, to the moon and back safely to Earth, right? And that's the goal, right? We got to get somebody to the moon and get them back to Earth, and that's what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, 
that seems to me to be something that's fairly actionable and doesn't really require the involuntary cooperation of all that many people, except in the context of taxes, which you don't need everybody's cooperation to collect because they're involuntary. The, the whole point of the moon landing being a public project is that it doesn't have to be endeavored upon voluntarily by people, right? Like you don't have to chip in uh, because it turns out that, you know, the the private sector is not as good as the public sector is at doing this kind of thing, a, at least historically, right? And, and I think that private sector space organizations uh, still have a lot to prove if they really think they're going to be the future of this kind of thing. And every year they go by where they don't prove it is another year where they where their hypothesis seems more and more questionable. Uh, but also like curing cancer, that is a discursive that has a discursive problem associated with it. Uh, it right. It's worth noting that like Kennedy didn't said we want a moon landing. He said we want to send somebody to the moon and bring them back. He defined yeah, a, clearly what we're trying to it's do. It's definitely a smart goal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go, Matt. We talked about these before on the podcast. Smart goals, but but cancer has a problem, right? I mean, the cancer I mean, has one, a lot of problems. Yeah, several, several, and and one is what is cancer? Yes, exactly. Right. I mean, and what is what is curing it? Well, yeah, what is curing it and what is cancer? Because the issue is that cancer is an umbrella clay, uh, an umbrella term for a, a wide variety of different sorts of cellular malfunctions and, and different things that arrive at a similar sort of end state, maybe or maybe they don't, but which have very different ways of developing and progressing. Uh, and, and so if you were to really try to be clear about what you wanted to achieve, it would be like, I want to end what disorderly involuntary cellular uh, disorderly cellular division, right? Like in our lifetime, like uh, like damn deleterious disorderly cellular uh, multi- uh, division in every human. And already, being on the already, planet. the whole speech writing staff is just shaking their head. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Like Ken- Kennedy was. I mean, uh, what, whatever his uh, other pluses or minuses, like he was a great communicator. That's and true. and like the 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 way i mean the way he framed it the way it was set you know and and yeah as you say like uh honestly you know that there's only been one there's only been one um like government objective i think that comes close whatever you think of it that comes close in terms of being this clear this clearly articulated you know what it is the it's, monroe doctrine uh, no, no it's, it's we're going to we're, we're going to build a wall Right? Uh, like the, no, like like no, it. You're right. I'm like it or hate right. it, and I hate uh, it. Uh, right? Yeah. As communication is brilliant, you know, because it is. Well, it's not specific, and it's not necessarily time bound. It doesn't. It, it, there's no indication of of like uh, when it's a failure if the wall isn't isn't built by. So it's not totally a smart goal, but like it really it imagines a desired end state that is absolutely clear in the minds of the people who uh of the in the minds of the people who who get it so like we're gonna put a man on the moon and bring him back safely you know within a decade is uh i mean i i don't know hats i mean hats off right like uh and you can say that because they used to wear hats back then Uh, now now it would be you know i don't know Um, it's interesting to think that the moon landing itself isn't a problem uh, isn't solving a problem the moon landing is a goal that involves the solving of problems in order to achieve it. That's cool. Yeah, same and one. It, yeah, right? And so, like, unlike, and like the wall <laughs> isn't even really the solution to it. Like, the wall, the idea of the wall just sort of elides the idea of whether it can solve a problem or not. It's just like, I'm going to propose this thing. And the problems with the wall are more like, Who's going to pay for it? Where are you going to get the stuff? What are you going to do about the the wildlife? And and what about all the other problems and the eminent domain that you have to do? Like like it's it's really it's it's ele- it's it's very clever because it's very elegantly separated from the actual uh, situation that it, that the, that he's referring to, which is much more complicated and especially from his perspective, uh, not really solvable um, uh, in the sense of like you can't you know force humanity not to change. And even if you wield horrendous power of cruelty and evil in the world, uh, you can't force people not to mix with each other. Right. Like it's, it's like eventually this these sorts of things are going to happen. And it's a matter of uh, of how you relate to this sort of reality. I mean, that's my perspective on it anyway, is that cultures and people do tend to move. And these efforts to forcibly separate them in a cultural sense are often doomed to failure. Uh, and, and but that's why he didn't say we're going to keep we want we're going to have an English speaking America, which is what he would want. Right. He would be like like he would he would want something like every person in the United States is going to speak English by X year. 
right? That would not be possible. That's like not a that's not a goal of this sort of of this sort of uh, ilk, right? Because you know you're not. Um, well, I mean, I guess it's probably I'm making it more actual than it would be, but it's like it, it doesn't refer to something that you can really endeavor upon by yourself because it involves the collaboration of a whole bunch of people that you're not responsible for. And I think that's that's what it comes down to with climate change, too. Right. Which is like there's any you're, you're talking about a whole bunch of people who have who don't have a cohesion to them, who don't have necessarily a reason to cooperate with each other. And and, the, and in order for the thing that you want to have happen to happen, they all have to voluntarily cooperate. And it's not something that you can do on your own. Right. Um and I don't know. I'm doing a bad job of, of identifying the kind of sleight of hand that's happening with the whole idea of the wall with relation to the moon and the landing of the like, we're going to send a rocket there. We're going to build a thing. But I totally get what you're saying about it. Like, you know, Mark, you know what I'm talking about here? How like these ideas of like um, the problems that relate like, OK, OK, I'm, so I'm going to slow down for just a second. And I'm going to say, like, if there's something that somebody is doing right and then you stop them from doing that thing, and then somebody else just does it, right? I, w- I would say that that it's going to be really tough to run a project where you stop everybody from doing it, uh, right? Because that's going to involve total control of the entire Earth, right? Yeah, it, right. And so, like, and no one has the- that but Facebook. Well, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So, like, but even Facebook, it's like their mission is what connects the world, right? Although that's kind of a, an, uh, I mean, Google's is probably, maybe Google is the real moonshot that's happening, right? Which is like collect and index all the world's information, uh, which they're, they're actually seem to be doing to a certain I mean, degree. They're making progress on it. For <laughs> sure. But it's also seem, I mean, something like that might similarly be related to the kind of project management principles that are in work in the moon landing, which were, of course, derived from military application. Uh, right. Like that, that you have to develop project management capabilities in relation to some sort of necessity in order to have them to exercise them frivolously in the pursuit of performative and sort of ethical goods. Right. Like it's like there has to have been some sort of reason why we figured out how to do this. There has to have been some sort of pressure that forced us to, to do the uncomfortable work or rather that forced us to sift through all of the different ideas that people came up with, apply people to something for a long period of time to get them to come up with something. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's just uh, you're, saying, you're saying that, like, get a mechanized army from the United States over to Europe was like a, a pretty good uh, test bed for, the, you know, for, yeah. for solving problems. Of or this building, scale. A, building a freaking atomic bomb. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Over there briefly. Because That's the, the need because the need that that is being addressed is is clarifying. Right. Um, and, and, and it's and it's and it's the kind of thing that is very the result is really the thing that you're most concerned about. Um, maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's the trick of all this, is like you can build a project that works towards a particular result, but if you haven't articulated your result, you're not going to be able to do the project. And And even so, if you articulate a result that is out of step with what you actually want, such as the wall, right, you can accomplish your project and still not achieve your goals, right? Because there's things like boats, airplanes and such, and, and other methods of transportation, like moon capsules and such rockets uh, for people to get around. And so building a wall doesn't really accomplish what you want to accomplish in terms of, like, isolating yourself from the rest of the world. Uh, but you could build the wall, right? And and so, like, when people say, cli- when they people say, oh, climate change, you know, climate change itself is this sort of Orwellian term that's been adopted as a uh, as a dodge against the harsh reality of what's happening because it's palatable, right? Because it's general enough and palatable enough uh, to 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 be talked about without people constantly arguing semantics. Uh, by which I mean everybody is within is allowed to believe what they think it means, and you don't waste all your time talking about it. But at the same time, when everybody doesn't agree on what it means, then you can't really accomplish anything with regards to it, right? I mean, I don't know. It's uh, I'm, I'm being very dark here, but it's sort of like um, in a war. <laughs> you don't necessarily have I mean, I guess you do. Right. You in a war, you have the luxury you do. You can define the objective of a war in a vague way that uh, is that that you leave deliberately vague. So the different the different people who are participating in it can believe what they want to believe. And uh, and then you can kind of like allow them to kind of discursively create the war through a kind of organic process of internal feuding. And that would be like the American Civil War when the union was losing, right? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, you know, we're trying to do this. We're trying to do that. We really want this whole thing to kind of get done. And, 
and and it's not until you bring in you know Grant and it's like I'm going to go and directly confront Robert E. Lee and kill him, <laughs> like kill all of his people and get killed myself. That it's like okay, now we have an objective, right? Now we're going to try to accomplish it. Um, and it's horrible and it's dark, but it's not the only kind of clarifying thing, right? It's like well. Uh, I mean, if you want to talk about climate change, we have to build uh, we have to build a a wall to keep the water out. Right. Is a different sort of goal that we have to stop everybody from voluntarily burning fuel um, you know, in the world. Right. Um, because it's something that you can do yourself. Uh, I mean, I don't yeah, know yeah, yeah, about that. You know, like, good so luck. The point yeah. of, uh, of the people building the seawalls right now, like, that's a very uh, real thing that's happening here in New York. Right. Yeah. Um, the what carries more. Uh, what gets talked about more is less about building seawalls and it's more about like, let's make this city carbon neutral by 20 something or other. Right. Um, and to your, that's, that's precisely to your point, Pete, about how um, sort of the lack of doing something is not as appealing as, as the actual doing of something. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, like build the seawall is not like no one's campaigning on that. <laughs> right. Um, well, I guess that's the point. <laughs> they should. Some hipster should just start doing it. Just start running the seawall campaign and see if it works because um, oh, it's got good optics or whatever. Good, good. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's like what it comes around to to me also is the uh, you have. I think everybody, everybody who goes into planning a wedding, <laughs> I think, uh, goes into it with the idea that a project that a sort of multitask project is the same thing as kind of a large amount of housework or yard work or, or that basically like work plus work plus work plus work plus work equals project, which is not true, right? That's not actually true. But I think that's when you go into planning a wedding, which is often for a lot of people, their first big project. Uh, and I think that, that, or maybe applying to college is the first big project that you might encounter on your own or like a community service project you have to run, uh, for some sort of, you know, thing you're doing in school, whether in you're order, like an Eagle to, Scout in or order to apply society. for college for college. Well, yeah, exactly. Know? It's like, that's where you usually confront the difference between work and projects. Um, and the difference between work and a project is that in a project, the various sorts of tasks have to be kind of aligned and organized around sort of general, not general, but sort of overarching, uh, what, goals, accountabilities. I mean, you both you guys do more project management than I do. And this is something I'm trying to learn and get better at uh, at my job. And so if any tips, t- uh, tips you have, I would, I would love to hear them because uh, specifically large projects that are more than you can do yourself. Is it's like a, it's like a conference, it's like a it's like a it's like a crisis of conscience that every hardworking person encounters when they finally come across something that they really just can't do themselves and have to build a big project and delegate and organize and give it off to people, right? Like um, that's a sort of transformative way of thinking about work, and it's not the way that work is generally organized over the course of the history of the human race. And, and so, one of the most notable things about the moon landing for me, other than the fact that the goal that was set was a goal where the results were kind of practical and achievable and and could be done by a group of people that might be assembled in order to do them. Uh, and the resources that do it might actually be kind of controlled, right? It doesn't require kind of voluntary commitment. Other than those things, the other aspect of it is it, it required so many different intermediary steps. I mean, they had to develop the microchip sort of, right? Like they had to develop the integrated circuit in order to go to the moon. Uh, and in, in which case, the moon landing has already paid for itself many times over, uh, right? But uh, but they had to because they needed something lighter than vacuum tubes or whatever, right? Um, but for you guys, how do you confront that jump between work plus work plus work plus work plus work and then project? I mean, I, I had a – when I transitioned to like being a manager uh, more than being a uh, – what is the the slightly patronizing Orwellian term that we, we use to describe it? Individual uh, contributor? Yeah, yeah, an individual <laughs> contributor. That's that's the one. Um, w- once I made that, that transition, uh, I actually went to my boss. I had a very good mentor at the time um, who really helped me with, with kind of making the jump. And uh, I asked, you know, when, when do I – what is a good day? for me how do i know i've had a good day right because when i'm when i'm set certain tasks i have a good day when i achieve the tasks and it's a bad day when when i don't achieve the tasks and like i suppose you know as a manager i'm accountable for kind of a higher order of task and like if if those things get done on time or if the you know i'm 
if the, if the project releases on time or if the ultimate, you know, sort of desired uh, end state is is achieved, like I that that's good. But but in any given day, how do I know whether I'm tracking towards that? Well, you know, you have charts and you have schedules and you have tooling and you have you know uh, ideas of like phases of of projects. You break the project into smaller. But you know, okay, fine then. But like in any given day, how do I know that I have done the most effective thing to help us get and you know the answer is is you to a certain extent you don't know right like to a certain extent it, there there's kind of a dark art to it in that you, you gotta feel your way uh through it a, a little bit and and a lot of the sort of the the process czars a lot of the people who are very committed to this or that piece of software or to this or that kind of thought technology uh or methodology are actually just managing their anxiety <laughs> with those things <laughs> yeah. yeah there you go yeah. are actually really just sort of doing that and uh and so the the answer that my boss gave me actually at the, at the, you know and I had attained kind of a lofty title at the in an organization um doing software engineering for this this organization right i guess not doing software engineering um managing people who did software engineering he looked at me and he said you have a good day when this company makes money and you have a bad day when this company doesn't make money or doesn't make as much as it could. And it was a really realigned my thinking around a lot of, um, around a lot of things. Like, honestly, to, to be, to be perfectly frank in a startup, uh, you know, a lot of the time, like you, you have a good day when you increase the valuation of your stock options, you know, (laughs) and you have a bad day when, when the, when the thing decreases, you know? So, um, I you know I I could give certain particular examples, but I actually don't want to do it on the no, air. No, don't do that. But uh, but you know so so I you know I I think a lot of a lot of what gets put out there as as expertise is actually magical thinking, um, yeah. and a lot of uh, what you need is wisdom uh, as opposed to expertise, which requires experience and and scar tissue. Um, mm. Anyway, that's that's what I think, Mark. You, you yeah. might have a different take on this. No, it's, it's by and large the same. And the wisdom piece, what you're talking about there, the way it uh, plays out for me is like those side conversations that you have to make sure that there's buy-in and all the parts of the organization that you need and that people really understand at a very fundamental level what it is that is trying to be accomplished um, so that when it comes time to make hard decisions, you can actually do them. Um, that's all kind of like in the ideal. In, in, in practice... Um, and this is really not the uh, the lesson you should be taking from the uh, not you cannot apply these lessons to the Apollo program or anything really of, of seriousness is that um, project management in the type of government practice that I do often turns out to be kind of like a uh, cover your ass to be really frank <laughs> like I did the thing so that like when when things go wrong like when the rocket ship blows up and does not get the <laughs> men back safely they can't blame me and I've got the receipts to prove that I was at the meetings and that I raised oh the yeah no I sent the, sent the email you know uh-huh. not, thanks thanks for uh, yeah. thanks for the quick conversation in the hall today just to recap a couple points that we talked uh-huh. about yeah. you are 100% responsible for the moon landing <laughs> Thanks very much for your time. Don't, don't hesitate to stop by if I can be of any help whatsoever. So, okay. So, <laughs> um, I, I, have, I have a conjecture. I don't know, Mark. Did you want to chip, it, chip in more? Or? I can't, I'm going to possibly top that. No, that is that is the essence of uh, how to get them someone to the moon and back or slash uh, not get blamed for the disaster. <laughs> so so here's, an, here's an idea that is related to what we've been talking about, and I think related to what you guys just said, which is that um, – when you're talking about kind of multi-stage projects where the absolute success of what you're working on might not be apparent at any given time, but you have to keep staying focused and working on it. And somebody has to be managing the project in the sense of setting the intermediate goals and kind of allocating the resources and, and visioning in some, I mean, I don't want to say it's visioning because that's even, that is even that itself is too esoteric to really encompass what we're talking about, but kind of break down how the whole thing is going to be tracked and organized. Uh, doing all that stuff, right? Um, you have to be able to tolerate the lack of measurable success in any sort of short period of time. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm reading. I'm reading a, a, a book right now, which I think it's sort of a pop psychology book. And I don't know if you guys have read it. Have you guys read uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth? 
I've read parts of it. No, yeah, I'm yeah I mean, familiar with you know. Yeah, good, good, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not earth shattering, right? And I don't think there's anything in it that I wouldn't have already said that I wouldn't that I didn't already learn from my middle school gym teacher. But I think it's useful to have it these kinds of thoughts uh, put in the language of the kinds of circles where they are most useful. But like one of the ideas here, the the whole thing is about you know persistence and the value of hard work and persistence, uh, you know, as opposed to merely talent. Uh, or let me rephrase, as opposed to merely uh, virtuosity, right? So it's not just, are you good at math? It's that, well, do you do math every day? And in particular, if you use math in your everyday life, do you have some sort of arching goal of what your overarching goal of what you're trying to accomplish? And in her psychological study, she had attributed uh, one of the characteristics of grit. And, and this is one of the problems with all pop psychology that's like this, right, is that um, personality is not unchangeable or permanent, but in fact changes over time and maybe even changes based on the situation. So you can measure somebody's personality in a particular context, but if the context changes, then their personality is going to change. And so therefore you can't really say anything too authoritative about any one person's personality. But one of the dimensions of this kind of- Oh, I don't, I don't know, Pete. I'm an INF. <laughs> Jay. <laughs> yeah, but 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 when you but when you uh, oh gosh, I I was gonna make a joke that would make a lot more sense if you weren't already a J. I was gonna be like, yeah, but when you but when you when you watch Aquaman, you go from being a P to being a J real quick. <laughs> but the point being that like uh, having a sense of purpose and a sense of hopefulness are both very important to people who are able to sustain uh, a practice for a long period of time. In her study, right, which is like if they still, you know, study say a musician who is able to practice regularly over the course of a ten-year period, that musician, in order to do this, most likely has to be hopeful in some way that their practice is worth it. Otherwise, they will not be applying their faculties to the same thing on a dedicated basis over a long period of time. And and I think that. That, uh, what we were talking about in terms of the kind of bureaucratic learned helplessness that's so common in large projects is perhaps an indication of why moonshots are so tough. And in particular, to tie it back to what I would say, in which case a problematic lack of nuance in the hopefulness surrounding your project might actually be a psychological tool that is helpful to make keep everybody uh, working, right? Like, and I mean, that's not that's not earth shattering either. People call it the Kool-Aid, right? But they say it sort of in a despicable way. But it's like, yeah, you would like to be able to do more to solve your problem, but it doesn't help that you don't have any hope that what you're going to do is actually going to be accomplished, right? Like, and I think that, and I don't say that about, you know, my own work. I say that universally about almost everybody's work. Right. Which is this. The, everybody has to confront this sense that what they're doing doesn't matter at some point. And and I think that. Hey, Pete, we, power, we, yeah. we do a podcast like we don't have to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is not but something. you have hope, to, like, Yeah. I mean, I'm hopeful. I mean, overthinking gives me hope, but I don't know what kind. I actually wanted to call, convene a meeting with you guys at some point to maybe uh, have a come to Jesus moment and kind of refresh my hope in the future of the podcast uh, or in the future of something. Right. Uh, because I feel like we all kind of go through ups and downs and, and uh, we could all use a little bit of a uh, of a moment to uh, to reflect. Oh, God, everyone, God, everyone listening, write a nice email to fence at overthinking it dot com <laughs> and tell him what he's meant to you. Goodness gracious. Like, Pete, we we choose to get an ad for Casper mattresses on this podcast within the decade. <laughs> Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Oh, God. But that's like, but in I, in I, the case of the mattress, it is soft. <laughs> well, no, it has uh, just the right sink and just the, just the right bounce. Pete, I, I, just, I, I know we're, we're coming in for a, the safe landing. We've, we've brought three, three men back from the podcast. But uh, I, I, I want to add one more thing as a person who yeah. practiced piano pretty seriously for a lot of years and, and I don't really anymore, but I, you know, but I did uh, at times. And, and the other thing that it has to be is enjoyable in the moment. You have to like the work mm. minute, minute to minute. Like you have to like practicing somehow. And part of that is the sense of hope. And part of it is like finding something that you enjoy about actually returning to, or, you know, actually this, I don't need to make this point to you. You have a squat rack in your garage, right? And like what, what keeps Keeps you. It's not just the the thought of those gains, you know, that like uh, keep you coming back. You must you must in a at a certain point, you know, like squaring your shoulders under the bar and you know getting ready to straighten your legs, right? Like that's there there. 
you have to like going back uh, all the time. And and just to tie back to 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 the podcast, because of course everything is really actually all about us, and all criticism is autobiography, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> like, you know, one of the one of the great things about doing the overthinking at podcast, uh, wh- whatever the size of the audience, how you know, however big a deal we were in 2010 and aren't anymore because blogs aren't a thing. Like, is that like it's nice to. Uh, uh, it feels good to do it with you guys every week, mm. you know, and that's and that's that's what I, I think that's what accounts for almost eleven years of of uninterrupted weekly weekly podcasts, a, a streak yeah. that makes me more and more scared every time I I think of it or mention it because the only thing ever that can happen to a streak is it gets broken at at some point and and it, you know and and that's uh now now we're old enough to contemplate mortality and that's like a, a, a difficult difficult thing. Anyway, God, sorry, I just dug myself. You're going to pry this Yeti blue microphone from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I might get a new microphone at some point. We'll see. Uh, send, <laughs> maybe, send, maybe. Sound pretty good. Send, send pretty good the way we are. And, and that right. microphone will have a thousand times more computing power. Than <laughs> there it is. Thanks for listening to the Overthinking <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> and thanks very much to Mark and Pete for taking this journey to the moon with me. We'll be back next week with more of of this show. Uh, in the meantime, nice emails, Fenzel at overthinkingit.com. And we'll be back next week to subject <laughs> the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. So let's say that you had to start playing the moon landing yourself right now. Which project management software would you use? Because I can't tell the difference, and I don't know whether any of them could do what I need them to do. Somebody help me. You, you want my honest answer, Pete? Yes. I an never Excel- want you to lie to me, Mark, ever. An, Even an if Excel- I tell you, ask you if my pants leak, my butt look big. <laughs> an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean, I'll go, ah, that's the answer I didn't want to hear. I'll what go you. you I'll go you one more, Pete. Like my, you know, the, the really almost nothing requires more than uh, than a you know a legal pad and a pen. Uh, but the charts and the graphs and the reports and the stuffs and the all right you know we choose to use an excel sheet not because it is easy but because it is hard